So this past weekend, I found myself in Boston for the wedding of my dear friend Ryan Ambrose. Uh, congratulations to Ryan and Tiffany on your marriage. And this bar we ended up at both nights is called Hop and Scotch. And I've been to a lot of places in my life. I've worked in the service industry a very long time. I mean, both of those things sound pretty good. I've, I, I've never been to a place where... I know for a fact that their first marketing meeting was just looking at a board with a photo of me. No, the only way they can make this more appealing is if they called it Hop, Scotch, and Redheads. That was it. Rob Scotch. Oh, uh, yeah. Copyright. Really? It's copyrighted. Don't even try to steal the idea. Really? I, I, I thought I was going to die, and I realized there is such a thing as a good death. Well, speaking of death, we're going to talk about the death of a very, very famous pirate today. Everybody, welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. My name is Rob North. And I am your co-host, Chris Miller. Chris, how are you feeling today? If I was any better, I'd be twins. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, two of you. <laughs> That's really what we need. Okay. So, um, today our subject is what? Today we're going to talk about the Battle of Ocracoke Inlet. Battle of Ocracoke Inlet. I seem to remember that. Now, we're coming up on a big anniversary for that, aren't we? Big, the Big 300. The Big 300. The tricentenary. I think that's the word. Uh, that sounds right. Now, why is, why is Ocracoke Inlet so important? Ocracoke Inlet is so important because it marks what is, accept, what is generally accepted as the end of the golden age of piracy. It was the death of history's arguably most infamous pirate, Blackbeard. Blackbeard himself. Everybody's favorite pirate, and with good reason. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to talking about this today. Yeah, this is a good one. This is a pretty important one. It is. Not it just is because of the anniversary, but this is this is kind of going to set the tone for all the episodes that come after. Well, and we're talking about somebody who has such a massive amount of mythos built around him, and this aura of of mystery and extravagance and terror, and somebody who goes so far, even his representation into the realm of fiction, things like being portrayed by Ian McShane in Pirates of the Caribbean 11, whichever movie it was. Yeah, it was one of the, um, one of like, 30. Yeah, being portrayed by Ray Stevenson in Black Sails, very well, might I add. That I like that performance a lot. Uh, so yeah, we're going to get to talking about that in a minute. Before we do that, I just want to thank everybody who listened to our preview episode that we put out a couple weeks ago where we talked just kind of a little bit about us and what we're about and how we got here and why we're going to be doing what we're doing with this podcast. Uh, we want to thank you all for the feedback as well. I know we're working through some audio issues. Uh, this, you know, we're figuring this out as we go. We're figuring out, you know, our microphones, our software that we're using. We did, uh, we did upgrade. We now have two microphones. We now have two microphones. So we're high class. For some reason, it's not going to sound like Rob is in a different room of my house. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Uh and uh, everybody, please keep the feedback coming. We really appreciate it. Uh, if you say anything about us on Twitter, I will block and report you. Mm, yes. The, uh, you know, the, we are kind of figuring this out, and you're seeing it warts and all. So we appreciate you hanging in there. So our subject today, as we mentioned, is the death of Blackbeard, the 300th anniversary of the Battle of Ocracoke Inlet. This is not going to be heavily biographical about Blackbeard. We're going to do a bit of a short biography about him just to give you an idea of the background and how he got to the point where the Battle of Ocracoke Inlet was was sort of a foregone conclusion. Uh, we are going to do a full biography of Blackbeard in the future. That's probably going to have to be a multi-part episode. That's going to be at least two parts. Absolutely. he's so significant to what we're going to talk about and because he's just so damn fascinating. And it plays into so many other things that were happening. 
in this time period. Um, so uh, we have several sources today uh, for this material, a lot of great books. Uh, I will post links to them on our social media pages so that you can go on Amazon, you can find the books if you are so des- uh, if you are so inclined. We have Under the Black Flag by David Cordingly. Uh, it's a great look at just kind of piracy in general. Yeah, it's it's the go-to book. Like, if you want to know anything about pirates, if you're interested yeah. at all in piracy, just pick it up. It's excellent. It's it's a great kind of one-size-fits-all book for finding out sort of the the truth of you know the life of the pirate and the privateer. The next book is The Republic of Pirates by Colin Woodard. Uh, I like this because it really goes into what I think was the most fascinating community in the world at this point which was uh, Nassau and this pirate stronghold that was declared their independence essentially from every major European power at this time, uh, which Blackbeard ties into a lot, and so does a lot of the other figures mentioned in what we're going to talk about today. We also have Blackbeard, America's Most Notorious Pirate by Angus Constum. Uh, This is a really, really good one for looking at Blackbeard specifically. Uh, It's probably the best modern biography of Blackbeard. And it does a great job of of portraying the event we're going to discuss today. The final one, and this one I love because of the the contemporary nature of this source. It's called A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates by Captain Charles Johnson. We could do an episode just on that book. Just on the book. Uh, It was written... Probably written by Defoe. Yeah, yeah, they think he was... Captain Charles Johnson was actually a nom de plume, and they think it was actually Daniel Defoe who yeah, wrote who wrote Robinson Crusoe, who was actually a part of William Dampier's uh, expedition, and we can go into that later. But it's it's great because it is somebody writing at that time. It's somebody writing only six years after the events of of the Battle of Ocracoke Inlet. Um, it's got a great style, a great literary flair. It can be a little melodramatic at times, but we've got a lot of great that, quotes from that book today. Everything from that era. It's just like reading it now. Everything is just so it's it's so unintentionally hilarious. It's great. Where he took up the humors of piracy. Just he really like did. It's it's so good. It's it, just, pick it up. It's amazing. It it is. Um, so Chris, I, I think we should move into a little bit about. Uh, Blackbeard himself, a little yeah, bit of I the think story it's of hard not to. Just yeah, much as we don't want this to be like a, just a Blackbeard episode. I mean, we are kind of going. What was it memento? We're going to start at the end, mm-hmm. and we're going to in a subsequent episode. Yes. We're going to talk about the beginning. Yes. Yeah, so uh, what what we're doing today is this is the Cliff's Notes version of his life. Uh, so I'd say let's let's cast our minds back into the past as we. Don the skins to recreate the hunt. Well, maybe not that far. But so the thing about Blackbeard is his real name, what it exactly was, is not known to us. Uh, the most popular uh, interpretation is Edward Teach, uh, although a lot of people think he was actually called Edward Thatch, uh, spelled about three different ways Edward Thack, Edward Thach, Edward Tack, Edward Thatcher. The only thing they seem to agree on is that his first name was Edward. Yeah, the dude's name was Ed, and we were just good with it. Mm-hmm. That's, for simplicity's sake, more often than not, we're just going to call him Blackbeard. Or, or Teach. I'm going to go with what the most, probably the most popular. Yeah, Teach is, is pretty well accepted at this yeah. point. That's also five letters, and it's a lot quicker to type in all my show notes. I like it. So, they think he was born sometime around the year 1680, uh, near Bristol in southwest England. 
Uh, Bristol was a uh, uh, the second largest city in England at this time. It was the primary trade port with West Africa and the Caribbean colonies. Uh, it's likely that he was from a family of means, and we know that he was literate, uh, which was not actually all that common amongst uh, pirate captains. Um, even in these positions of authority, a lot of these guys did not know how to read or write. Maybe they could do basic mathematics or what have you. Mostly it was just down to just sailor sense. Yeah, guys signing with an X isn't just like a Hollywood trope. Like, that actually happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, it, it's likely that he went to sea at an early age. Uh, pretty much everyone in Bristol who made a lot of money made it through maritime trade. And for the most part, they would send their sons off to sea at a pretty young age, sometimes as young as 9 or 10 years old, to get an idea of what the business was like. It was, you know, the idea of the apprenticeship was central to just about every trade at this time in, in the Western world, and going to sea was no different. You know, in your late childhood years, your early teen years, you were apprenticed to someone who knew the trade, who'd been in business a long time. And for somebody like Edward Teach, it meant going to sea on a merchant vessel. Um, they think he became a privateer or a part of the Royal Navy uh, in the service of the Crown during Queen Anne's War, which was the North American theater of the War of Spanish Succession, which lasted from 1701 to 1714. This was a war uh, that the English spot, uh, fought against the Spanish and the French and their allies. Um, there's a bit of a problem with the idea that he was in the Navy in that he was of means. If he joined the Navy, he would have joined as an officer, an officer trainee, and the Admiralty, even at this time, kept meticulous records, and there's nothing that corroborates the idea that he was that he became a part of the Royal Navy. Yeah, we were discussing this earlier. The closest thing they could find was a guy named Thomas Thatcher, mm-hmm. and that was kind of the closest thing ever. But they did find that dude. So yeah, you know that he was a, it turned out to be a separate person. They were the yeah, the likelihood that it's the same guy is extremely low. Uh, privateers, of course, are. Uh, are not quite the same as pirates. Essentially, they do the same kind of thing. They hunt merchant shipping, they take goods, they they capture ships, but they do it with what's called a letter of mark, which is a letter of permission from their home country, in this case, Queen Anne I of England, uh, that basically says, you have the crown's permission to go out and hunt enemy shipping. You will outfit your own vessel, you will crew your own vessel at your own expense. The only difference is a portion of what you take goes directly back to us. Which, as it turned out for most privateers, was the lion's share of it. Mm-hmm. It would be relatively unsurprising yeah. if you know anything about any of the monarchies of the era. It depended, well, it depended on who was, who was in charge. It depended on the uh, dealers, the brokers, or even the speculators that you went through. Uh, it could be a way to become fantastically rich or a way to get utterly screwed. Yeah. So the War of Spanish Succession was fought to prevent the unity of the French and Spanish crowns after the death of King Carlos II of Spain, died with no legitimate heir, and he left the throne to Philippe, Duke of Anjou, uh, grandson of the famed Sun King, Louis XIV. Uh, and the English basically declared war on them in order to preserve the balance of power in Europe and to preserve the strength of their trade. The alliances all joined up. It was kind of like the start of World War I. Uh, the war was fought on several fronts. Uh, Northern Europe and the Low Countries, Italy, the Iberian Peninsula, the Rhineland. But it was really the first European war in which the various powers, colonies in North America would play a significant role. Um, and although fighting in the colonies was nothing new, there's this idea of no peace beyond the line, uh, which is a pretty common phrase in use at the time, and that was that raiding, privateering was always happening on a low scale amongst the colonies. So it's basically just an escalation of those same sorts of activities. They think that 
Teach spent most of the War of Spanish Succession sailing from uh, Jamaica under various privateer captains. And according to Captain Charles Johnson, he hath oft distinguished himself for his uncommon boldness and personal courage, end quote. So we think he was pretty good at what he did. And by the end of the war in 1714, he was in the service of a privateer captain who later became a pirate, and even later then, a pirate hunter, fellow by the name of Benjamin Hornigold, who we will definitely get to in future yeah, that's gonna be, episodes, that's gonna be at probably. Least an episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime, anytime these guys start changing sides, now we really got to jump on that. Mm-hmm. Hornigold's a fantastic story. Absolutely. Uh, after the end of the war, uh, Teach went with Hornigold to the island of New Providence in the Bahamas. It was a largely uninhabited island at the turn of the 18th century um, until a fellow named Henry Jennings, who was also a privateer who went pirate, uh, turned it into a temporary base. Uh, it had a harbor that could safely house dozens, if not hundreds, of vessels, but was really too shallow for the Royal Navy's larger vessels to navigate. It was also close to most of the busy shipping lanes off the coast of Florida and in the Caribbean. Um, Author George Woodbury describes it as no city of homes. It was a place of temporary sojourn and refreshment for a literally floating population. And he continues, The only permanent residents were the piratical camp followers, the traders, and the hangers-on. All others were transient. So you have this massive pirate camp that grows over the course of the early 18th century and later turns into the Pirate Republic of Nassau, the... Uh, settlement referred to in Republic of Pirates by Colin Woodard. Yeah, if you think it sounds fun, it was. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's exactly what you think. They're like Disney kind of got it right in the ride, uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Like with all the carousing and drinking, that's pretty much how it started. I, I think we would have had a great time there, and it also would have scared the absolute shit out of us at the same time. Yeah, like it, it was, it was completely lawless. It was, you just had to hope that people who stab people for a living did not want to stab you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Teach uh, began operating as either the quartermaster or the second mate of Hornigold's crew out of New Providence. And in the summer of 1716, he was given the command of his first vessel. Uh, it was a small sloop, which is a uh, shallow draft uh, trading vessel. A small ship, normally with a single mast, very simple rig. Uh, and he began to operate with Horn, uh, Hornigold as part of a small pirate flotilla. Uh, they embarked on a cruise around the southern mainland of the U.S., taking at least 10 vessels. These are the ones that are on record uh, between the northern coast of Cuba and southern Virginia. And it was actually during this cruise that Teach is first uh, mentioned in the records, uh, in British records, um, this being from a report made by a Captain Matthew Month after an anti-piracy patrol. It's a small entry. It just says, A Captain Thatch operating a sloop of six guns and some 40 men. That's it. So he continues to go to sea uh, as part of Hornigold's flotilla. September 1717, Teach and Hornigold are joined by a fella named Major Steed Bonnet. Oh, it's your boy Steed! Your boy Steed! I'm so excited about the next one. We're going to talk about him next time. and That's... I'm going to be calling him Captain Bumblefuck for a reason. So prepare yourselves for that one. Yes. Um, So Steed Bonnet was a rich landowner and military officer from Barbados, uh, who basically turned pirate on a lark. Um, We'll get into all the reasons why next time. Uh, And and some reasons why those reasons might have been bullshit. Maybe. As I've been finding out, like some of these do start Mm. to make sense. It's chipping away at everything I've ever known about Steed Bonnet. But I still think that he's just 
just a lovable bonehead. Yeah, that's true. We're still going to talk about them, though, because it, it makes for a fun story. Yeah. And it's definitely something that's going to be a lot of fun to discuss. So Bonnet uh, outfits a sloop called the Revenge, uh, throws 10 guns on it, crew of 70 men, all at his own expense, but his crew is extremely dissatisfied with his command. Yeah, this is not piracy par for the course. Like, he, he bought a boat and bought all the guns... And then he bought a crew. Well, it's 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 not really piracy. It is. It's not. No, it's he, it's an improv sketch disguised as piracy. Del Close would have loved this because this guy just yes ended his way. This is like what happened to being a pirate see, captain. You see all these videos online of like some hyper rich eighteen year old YouTube star mm-hmm. buys like a brand new Ferrari. Yeah, he's, it, it ends like on a guardrail or a telephone. He's case. every kid on Instagram that you hate. Yeah, pretty much. He's every kid on Instagram that you hate. Pretty much. So, so what ends up happening is essentially yeah, the, we, we're going to get sidetracked by this one, and we just we can't yeah. go down this route. We got to we got we got to move on up for you. We got to move on. So what happens now is the what we we touched on this last time. We've got the management review from hell. Uh, now this is with Bonnet's permission, but Edward Teach and then we use the word permission lightly. Yeah. Uh, it, he moves over to the Revenge to take command in Steve Bonnet's place to basically go, all right, listen, idiot, this is how it's done. Um, and so you're Steve Bonnet. You're this rich idiot, this this absolute fop who has no idea what he's doing, and this big, scary, bearded, salty sea dog is looking over your shoulder the whole time. The whole time. It's just... It's amazing. I'm going to work on like a Steve Bonnet voice for the next one. And I'm not sure which way I'm going to go with it, but I think I'm kind of nailing one down. It, every instinct is telling me Stewie Griffin. It's going to be a, a little a little higher pitched. Um, uh, yeah, but I will. It's good. Yeah, but I'm not going to break it out now. I'll <laughs> try it on my own time. I will do my level best not to channel Seth MacFarlane any more than I already do. So... Uh, so, so trouble starts to brew amongst this flotilla. Benjamin Hornigold, uh, he had a habit of only attacking uh, the ships that were Britain's old enemies. Uh, the French, the Spanish, uh, to an extent the Danish, the Saxons, it, it, the list goes on. But Teach and a lot of the men in the flotilla were really dissatisfied at all the rich English vessels that were sailing right by. And soon they, they all took a vote and demoted Hornigold. They basically said, yeah, you're not our leader anymore. Uh, this guy, this guy Teach, uh, we're gonna follow him now. He's he's gonna he's gonna lead us now. We like what this guy is so. Yeah, you you can stay with us or not. And Hornigold decided not to. He actually, at that point, retired from piracy and returned to take command of Nassau's defenses, and soon took a mass royal pardon that was offered by a fellow who was who was a privateer who then turned pirate hunter, a guy named Woods Rogers. Who? That's a multi-parter that's coming in the future too. Yeah, that's a really compelling story. Mm-hmm. So Teach sets off with the Revenge and another ship, uh, and this is where his career really begins to take off. And he starts showing up more and more and more in the records. Twenty-eighth of November, seventeen seventeen, off the coast of the island of Saint Vincent, Teach's two vessels approach a large French merchantman with twenty-eight with twenty-six guns on it. The ship is called La Concorde. He hove to alongside her. He fires a broadside. He boards the French vessel, forces the captain to surrender both the ship and its cargo of slaves. 
Teach then sails to the small island of Bekia, puts what slaves he didn't recruit to his own crew ashore, gives the French crew the smaller of the two sloops he already had, which they named La Mauvaise Rencontre. You'll have to excuse the pronunciation there. But thank you. Answering my bad my bad French with German. Uh, which means bad meeting. So pretty apropos. Yeah, it's nice to have a sense of humor yeah. whenever you're marooned on a tiny on a tiny island. So he they take uh, La Concorde, they then convert it into their own flagship. They put a whole bunch of additional cannons on this thing, bringing the total to, depending on the source, anywhere between 40 and 48. Uh, and with that, uh, Teach is now in command of the most heavily armed pirate vessel, probably not just in the Caribbean, probably in the entire Western Hemisphere. It's more than a match for any Royal Navy vessel that is in the Caribbean at that time. Their, their station in Jamaica has six warships, the largest of which has 32 guns. Now, anything they're going to send down that can outgun this ship, it can outrun. Yeah, they'll never catch it. Uh, and this ship really has gone down in history. Oftentimes just because of the name they gave it. The name of that was the Queen Anne's Revenge. Yeah, that's that's a pretty badass nickname mm-hmm. for a dude that, that made his bones in the... Fighting for Queen Anne. Yeah, fighting for Queen Anne of the Wars. Fighting for Queen Anne. Uh, and, and so after the acquisition of the Queen Anne's Revenge, uh, he begins to really step up the rates of his acts of piracy. And in the six-month span between November of 1717 and May 1718, he captures at least 20 ships, adds at least seven more ships to his flotilla, giving him the command of some 400 men and 10 ships. Um, and, and this is the time when Teach starts to adopt uh, the cognomen of Blackbeard. Uh, it's first mentioned in a deposition of a fellow named Edward Bostock, caption of a merchant sloop named Margaret, which describes Teach as, quote, a tall, spare man with a very black beard, which he wore very long. Uh, Charles Johnson also describes him thus. So our hero, Captain Teach, assumed the cognomen of Blackbeard from that large quantity of hair which, like a frightful meteor, covered his whole face and frightened America more than any comet that has appeared there bef- uh, in a long time. This beard was black, which he suffered to grow of an extravagant length, as to breadth that came up to his eyes. He was accustomed to twist it with ribbons in small tails after the manner of our Ramilly's wigs and turn them about his ears. Can we talk about how whenever the dude wanted to look badass, he put ribbons in his hair? Mm-hmm. But it worked. Like, oh, like yeah. he pulled it off. Oh, yeah. Like the powdered wig. Like it may not translate today, but this dude with little bows and his giant beard... Well, just because you're trying to scare people doesn't mean you can't look like a baller when you do it. Hey, if you look good, you play good. If you play good, you pay good. You're good. Uh, he also... Prime time. Prime time. <laughs> Anytime I can shoehorn Deion Sanders into this podcast, you bet your ass I'm gonna. So. Uh, Teach also, at this point, in this period, uh, began to develop his appearance in battle. Uh, it was gonna to bolster his reputation and also to avoid uh, unnecessary fights. Um, so he starts to use his appearance and his behavior to demoralize opponents who did choose to resist. The less fights you have, the less men you lose, the easier it is to take over the enemy vessel. This is basically an understanding of psychological warfare. It's it's shock and awe is really what it is. Um, I'm going to quote Charles Johnson again here to describe his appearance in battle. Quote, Such a figure that imagination cannot form an idea of a fury from hell to look more frightful. Teach was tall, with broad shoulders. 
He wore knee-length boots and dark clothing, topped with a wide hat and sometimes a long coat of brightly colored silk or velvet. And he continues. He wore in battle, quote, a sling over his shoulders with three brace of pistols, that's six pistols, hanging in holsters like bandoliers, and stuck lighted matches under his hat, the latter to emphasize the fearsome appearance he wished to present to his enemies. Now, this is a guy who knows what society he's in, which is a very religious and a very superstitious society. And you, you have people who, who, they don't have television, they don't have films. Most of these guys have never even seen a, a, a realistic painting. They've seen these woodcuts and they've heard these stories of the, the demons that they are convinced stalk the world they live in. And this ship approaches, you hear this din of drums and trumpets and men shouting and screaming and firing flintlocks into the air. And all of a sudden, this guy who resembles... Every story you've ever heard about the devil himself leaps onto the deck of your ship. How would you react? Yeah, it's it definitely, definitely persuaded a lot of guys to not take that shot, to not draw that sword. Blackbeard, as good as he was, as effective as he was at capturing prizes, mm-hmm. many of the times he didn't have to fire around. No, just no. the sight of him had people giving up. Taken without cannon shot, without casualties. And, and, you know, you're this merchant sailor that's basically paid a pittance to defend some rich asshole's goods that you can't afford. And somebody, and somebody puts a flintlock in your hands and says, fight to the death to defend this. Bullshit, you're going to do out. that. I'm out. Nope, nope, you throw it down and you let this guy do what he will. Um, the next major episode in, in Teach's career is one of my favorites. Uh, he takes his fleet and he posts himself up outside of the port of Charlestown, uh, which is now Charleston, South Carolina, and then proceeds to blockade the largest port in the, the, the southern English colonies. They capture the town's pilot boat, they capture nine other merchant ships, and a fellow named Samuel Ragg, W-R-A-G-G, a member of the province council. He's basically the equivalent to a state senator. And they use these captives and, and these ships as a bargaining chip, and they use Rag as a go-between to bargain with the colony's government for medical supplies. Uh, and, and maybe this is an apocryphal story, but supposedly it was stuff to heal, uh, to treat syphilis. Yeah, in Nassau there was a, a massive outbreak, and they weren't sure what the sickness mm-hmm. was. Yeah, it was syphilis. Uh, unsurprisingly, it was syphilis. Uh, yeah, I would not be surprised if that actually is a, a true story, apocryphal though it may be. Um, Teach succeeded in having his demands met. They gave him these chests of medical supplies. He releases the captives, acquired both their valuables and goods from the captured vessels, and just sails away. Um, now, going back to the Queen Anne's Revenge, it, 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 has such a, it has such a place in pirate history. The thing about the ship is Blackbeard only hung on to it for nine months? Maybe. Nine months? Yeah, he barely used it, because when you have such a big vessel like that, it becomes a liability. You become a lot easier to track down, you become a lot easier to find. Yeah, you have a much bigger target painted on your back. Pirates were as successful as they were because they didn't have to go toe-to-toe with the Navy. Mm -hmm. They avoided the Navy at all costs. Yeah. So these guys used hit-and-run, small small boats. If you can't outgun them, outrun them. Yeah, and and a lot of these pirates, you think, you know, Blackbeard with a a 40-gun brigantine. That was not the case. These were sometimes two-masted sloops, sometimes one-masted sloops with between four and eight guns. Mm-hmm. A lot of them didn't even have cannons. Right. 
we'll, we'll do an episode about what pirate what, mo- what most pirate ships were yeah. like. So, uh, Teach lost the Queen Anne's Revenge uh, intentionally, some according to some sources, when it ran aground on a sandbar at Beaufort Inlet, uh, the entrance to the North Carolina uh, to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, cracked her mainmast, damaged her keel, um, and given that whilst he was blockading Charlestown, uh, they'd heard of the approach of Woods Rogers and his fleet of uh, large warships. Uh, he appears to have made the decision to abandon the Queen Anne's Revenge, disband a large portion of his crew, uh, basically to become more mobile, uh, making himself and and what men and ships he, he kept with him easier to hide amongst the shallows and shoals uh, and inlets of the Outer Banks. Um, his flagship at this point becomes a sloop named Adventure. Uh, so this is the time when, we mentioned Woods Rogers, uh, the British government offers a blanket pardon of pirates in order to stem the tide of attacks on shipping losses. Um, they offer this in conjunction with Woods Rogers' expedition, and the main intent of it was to break up the Pirate Republic of Nassau. If you can't beat them, forgive them, and turn them to your side. I think the most important thing that we kind of skipped, and it's just dawning on me now, mm-hmm. the reason why piracy was set, it was considered such a heinous crime is because it fucked with their wallet. Mm-hmm. Because it disrupted shipping. Yeah. That was really the only reason. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, they didn't really care about the murder. Like, honestly, the, the quality of life aboard a pirate ship was probably better than one in the Navy. Oh, or your average merchant ship. Right. Absolutely. By yeah. far. By far. Well, um, and, and that's stuff that we will discuss at length later. The Navy was disease. It wasn't pirates. It wasn't mm-hmm. other navies. Yeah. It sucked. Mm-hmm. But that's why the Crown had such a hard-on for pirates. Yeah. It's because that was their bread and butter. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't the idea that these guys were killing a lot of people. It's the idea of all these fat asses in periwigs at at Lloyd's just grabbing their head and going, "What do we do?" So we have Woods Rogers sailing in. We have this opportunity for a pardon, and Teach is interested. So he's not going to, but he's not going to risk his own neck in case it's a bluff. Who does he send? Our boy, our boy, your boy Steed, Steed Bonnet. He sends Steed Bonnet to meet with the governor of the Carolina colony, a fellow named Charles Eden. And I think I convinced Rob to do an episode on Charles Eden because this dude's the man. This it, it's like, I have never identified with with a character more than this dude. I love Charles Eden. He is he is as corrupt as it gets. He's. Look, we're going to have an entire episode devoted to this guy. I cannot wait to talk about it. I, I can't dwell on it now. But, so, they send Steve Bonnet to meet with Charles Eden in Bath, North Carolina. Bonnet receives a full pardon, returns to collect his ship, only to find that Blackbeard has stripped the ship of everything of value and marooned all the men on one of these little islands in the Outer Banks. At this point... Now that he's pissed he off, Steed Bonnet wrecked yeah. up his car and left. <laughs> this, is, this is the equivalent of breaking up with somebody and leaving all their shit on the front lawn. Yeah. So, like every relationship I've it, ever had, ever. <laughs> look, if you're going to pay me 50 bucks an hour to talk about this, we'll talk about this. Otherwise, we'll have to wait. So, Steed Bonnet acquires another ship, announces his return to piracy, and of course, this gets to Governor Eden. And it gets up to all the other colonies in the southern United States. He did, he did swear solemn revenge against he, Blackbeard. And which he, probably not the best idea. No. No. He, he he sought out he sought out Teach to try to take his vengeance 
Well, word gets out that he's about to set sail and he's returning to piracy. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. They, they just put a warship in the Cape Fear River that he's sailing out of. They capture him and he goes to the hangman's noose. Yep. We will talk about that at length uh, next That's time. That's also a funny story. There is a daring prison break involved. There, there is. And if... It, it, no, it's... It's a daring prison break with Yakety Sax playing in the background. Right. It's dumb. But it's dumb, but it's fun. So, Teach, knowing what, knowing what he's found out from Steed Bonnet, uh, proceeds to Bath, receives a full pardon from Governor Eden, settles in Bath, marries the daughter of a local landowner, um, which, according to Charles Johnson, is his 14th wife. But it is also the only one that is recognized. Yes. The only one, the only one named. Uh, he tries his hand at running a plantation. And turns out uh, he he either sucks at it or he hates it or some combination of the it two. It sounds from the stories like it was a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it might have been a combination of the two. So within two months of settling in Bath, he returns to piracy. He goes back to his ships that are anchored in the Outer Banks. He goes. He takes a pair of French vessels leaving the Caribbean, takes one of them back to Ocracoke with him, and goes to Governor Eden and claims that he found the ship abandoned at sea. So they convene an admiralty court uh, with a guy named Tobias Knight, who's the royal secretary, presiding over it. He finds that the ship was indeed derelict at sea, and Teach is cleared of all wrongdoing, which had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that out of the ship's cargo, 20 hogshead barrels of sugar were awarded to Tobias Knight, and 60 hogsheads of sugar to Governor Eden. It should also be noted that whenever he went to Eden for the for the pardon, mm-hmm. uh, the ship that he was on, all of a sudden, had no cargo. No it cargo. So there was no cargo at no, all. No, nothing on it, it at all. It was all gone. Nothing this on it at all. also the man, uh, Governor Eden, who uh, had a tunnel from his basement to a riverbank, mm-hmm. which he swears up and down was just to get to the river, and it wasn't so he could smuggle in goods and hang out with pirates. Well, sometimes you got to be efficient at getting to that early morning fishing. Uh, I'd like to point out at this point that 60 hogsheads of sugar is worth over $50,000 in today's money. <laughs> and Teach gets to keep what's, what remains after these little payouts uh, under rights of salvage. So it, Teach treads a gray area in this period where he's kind of being a pirate, kind of still a plantation owner, keeps his, uh, his ships anchored in Ocracoke Inlet, settling on land, travels to the anchorage frequently, though, and at times, he's playing host to other pirates like Jack Rackham, Charles Vane, Robert Deal, all of these guys who are being pursued by Woods Rogers' naval forces, and they're having parties on the beach. Yeah, the locals really like it. Um, this is the last colony that really abolished piracy. Mm-hmm. It was Piracy was kind of seen as like a fashionable vice. Yeah. It was kind of like, piracy was kind of like the cocaine of like 1718. It was, it was sexy. Yeah. It was sexy to these guys. Yeah. However, with all good times comes the buzzkill. Yeah. Enter Alexander Spotswood, governor of the Crown Colony of Virginia. So, Spotswood's growing concerned over the settlement of former, quote, pirates in, in the colony to his immediate south. And he didn't think very highly of Governor Eden. Uh, first, he knew Eden was corrupt, believed that Eden wouldn't do anything to combat any pirate presence that they met, might then prey on ships sailing to or from ports in Virginia. Secondly, Virginia at this time is a full crown colony. It's under control of the British crown and parliament. Uh, It's been around since 1607, whereas the Carolina colony, uh, which at this point hadn't split into north and south, that happens in 1729, is still what's called a proprietary colony. Uh, It's established in 1670, and it's 
it's established by granting a charter to either a private individual or a company of private individuals uh, that then administer the colony on their own dime in return for sending a portion of the profits to the British crown. Uh, Spotswood didn't believe that the Carolina colony had the strength or the concentrated government authority to deal with their own security issues. So he gathers intelligence on Teach's whereabouts from uh, former crew members that have taken the pardon, puts together a military expedition to take him into custody uh, for trial, or either kill him, and to be done with the matter. Uh, Now, in this whole process, there's lawsuits, there's arguments in the court, it's it's basically like the longest second half of an episode of Law, of Law and Order that you've ever seen. Uh, there's counter lawsuits, um, people getting jailed and walking free. Um, when we do our full biographical series on Blackbeard, we will get into this in detail. Yeah. Uh, this is about the point where he gathers a force, uh, a military force, including two Royal Navy frigates. HMS Lime and HMS Pearl. Yeah, those were uh, they were commandeered uh, unarmed sloops. Uh, well, no, those weren't. We're going to get to that. The Pearl, uh, the yeah, these were the warships that the men were sourced from that actually commandeered these okay, ships. Because yeah, uh, what, what was Maynard? He was uh, lieutenant of a- Maynard was the uh, Pearl. Yes, he was the first lieutenant, the, the second in command right. of HMS Pearl. Yeah. Uh, so, in addition to these ships, he gathers a force of militia and sends them overland into North Carolina. This is a violation of Crown sovereignty uh, and sends them to Bath to arrest or kill, teach, or any of his associates that may be in the town. It should also be noted that uh, Charles Eden was left out of the loop here. Yeah, nobody told Eden. Whoops. Nobody told Eden. He knew when somebody came galloping up to the governor's mansion and said, yeah, there's 400 Virginia militiamen uh, moving in a flying column towards Bath. I, I think you should know. So this is the point in the process where enter... Lieutenant Robert Maynard. Uh, He's a 34-year-old. He's from Dartford, England. He's been in the Royal Navy since he was 12 years old. And now, we get to talking about the fun part, the battle. Yes. So it's the 17th of November, 1718. Maynard is given command of two small 100-ton trading sloops uh, that have been commandeered from uh, civilian, uh, civilian stocks in the Virginia ports. Uh, one sloop was called Ranger. Uh, that was placed under command of another officer named Mr. Hyde, uh, midshipman, and the sloop Jane, which was under command of Maynard himself. Uh, 57 men from Pearl and Lime uh, were seconded to this, to this force. They set sail from Cacocton on the James River. Uh, they reached the edge of Ocracoke Inlet on the evening of the 21st of November. They decided to wait until the morning to attack because they are unfamiliar with the local geography and hydrography, and they don't have the greatest charts to deal with this part. Yeah, this if you've ever been to the Outer Banks, mm-hmm. if you've ever been on that side, you know that the water is extremely shallow, and it's full of sandbars, and sandbars have a tendency to move. Yes, they do. And, they do. And if you're not familiar with it, it's really easy to get your ship run aground. It's easy to get stuck. Now, unfortunately for them... The man who probably knows that water better than anyone else is the man they're coming to kill. Is the man they're trying to kill. It's, yeah, to get around the this Outer is Banks. Blackbeard's home turf. Yeah, to get around the Outer Banks, you need great charts. You need a lot of skill in navigation. The best idea would be to either hire or kidnap uh, a pilot, somebody who, somebody local who knew the waters well, and you have to take it slow. Um, so at this point, they stop all traffic from entering the inlet to 
prevent possible warning of uh, of their presence. They post lookouts to prevent Teach from either escaping down the mainland or just sailing around the other side of the inlet. Um, and this, this is going to sound a little complicated. We're going to post on social media a little map of the area just so you can get an idea of kind of the battlescape. Uh, and at daybreak, they set sail up the channel, going very slowly. They have a small boat preceding these two ships, uh, taking soundings, depth measurements, uh, to basically make sure they don't run aground. You know, these are small ships. They don't draw a lot of water. But we're in a part of we're in a part of the United States where I mean the shallow water is just extremely extremely treacherous. Um, basically, trying to make sure that the Ranger and the Jane didn't run aground. Now, at, th- at this point, we have a battle about to ensue. Let's look at the balance of power. Let's look at the things that are in Blackbeard's favor. He has familiarity with the local waters. He has a defensive position, so he can see these guys coming. He can react to their movements. And he has more firepower. He has, at this point, technically, he's the only one with firepower. He's the only one with firepower. Neither the Ranger or the Jane had cannons. uh, Large cannons, anyway. They might have had small swivel guns, but they don't make any mention of those. And the Adventure has at least eight, possibly nine cannons on it. And uh, now we have what's in Maynard's favor. He has more men. He has 57 men. Teach has... The sources vary. So, uh, the captain of the Pearl, a fellow named Brand, wrote an official report that stated that Teach had 19 men with him. Uh, Charles Johnson says he has 25 men with him. uh, Because most of his men were in Bath, North Carolina. Or had been cast ashore. Um, The only other advantage they really have is they have two ships, so they can maybe attack from two angles. If the depth of the channel allows it. So, Maynard's ships are approaching. Uh, Blackbeard's gunner, a guy named Philip Morton, fires a shot across the bow of the lead vessel as a warning. They don't stop. Uh, As the two vessels continue to approach, the adventure clears for action, and Teach cuts his anchor cable. So, turns is able to turn the ship rapidly. Starboard battery, the battery on the right side of the ship, is now facing these approaching vessels, and he waits. Once they were within roughly 100 yards... Teach and Maynard start hailing each other through speaking trumpets. According to Maynard's report, At our first salutation, he drank damnation to me and my men, whom he styled cowardly puppies, saying he would neither give nor take quarter. And I'm going to start using cowardly puppies as an insult more often. Yeah, I don't hate it. Yeah. And then, according to uh, Charles Johnson's account, Chris, you want to hit us with this one? Damn you villains, who are you? And from whence came you? Lieutenant made him answer. You may see by our colors that we are no pirates. Blackbeard bid him send his boat on board that he might see who he was, but Mr. Maynard replied thus. I cannot spare my boat, but I will come aboard of you as soon as I can with my sloop. That's pretty badass. Yeah. That's pretty badass. Upon this, Blackbeard took a glass of liquor and drank to him with these words. Chris? Damnation seize my soul if I give you quarters or take any from you. In answer to which, Mr. Maynard told him that he expected no quarter from him, nor should he give him any. So, surprisingly gentlemanly, a lot of chest thumping. Just shouting at each other and drinking. Just shouting at each other and drinking. To be fair, we do that, but we're not about to fight each other. Right. Um, Crazy, we made a podcast doing it. Yeah. 
Now, immediately after this exchange, this is when Teach opens fire. And he opens fire with the first and only broadside that he fires during this battle, directly into the bow of both of the oncoming vessels. Now, he, and it's immediately effective. It's immediately effective for a couple different reasons. Number one, you're hitting them with what's called a raking broadside. So every projectile you're firing out of these cannons is, t- is traveling the entire length of the enemy ship, from bow to stern. So you have the opportunity to hit more men as you're going by, you have more targets presented to you, and you have more of an opportunity to do damage to essential components of the ship. They also figure that uh, all of Blackbeard's cannons were double-shotted, which means that they had not only a, a round ball, a round cast-iron solid-shot cannonball loaded in each gun, but in front of that was probably something akin to grape shot or canister, uh, something they called swan shot, which is essentially a big collection of small musket balls. So to, to put a modern analogy on it, it's like taking a shotgun, putting a slug shell in, and at the same time putting in buckshot. So you have something that's going to do a lot of damage to the ship, and you have something that is just going to chop the crew to pieces. Yeah, a lot of damage to the people. Yeah, and, and these weren't even very big cannons. They were probably three or four pounders. Uh, the adventure is small enough that anything bigger than that would have placed too much stress on the on the ship itself that might have shaken it to pieces. But the numbers basically tell you it, it, it works. It's extremely effective. So on board the Ranger, uh, the smaller of the two ships with the smaller of the two crews, of the crew of 24 men... 20 men are killed or wounded, uh, including the death of Midshipman Hyde. Removes her from the battle. Removes him as a command element. One broadside. One instant. And five out of every six of the men. are ton sloop. Yeah. This is a big boat. Mm-hmm. Well, it's probably about the size of a city bus. Yeah. But, like, whenever we're talking about how this is a smaller vessel, just to put it into terms, it's still a hundred tons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... But this broadside just sweeps the decks clear. It just sweeps the decks clear. It, it's you have this big group of men standing there. You hear a bang. You see a lot of smoke. And then they're not standing. And then they're not standing there. Eighty eighty three percent of the men in this crew are now lying on the deck bleeding because not only do you have this this small shot coming through, cannonballs are hitting the body of the ship. They are sending big splinters flying out like another giant shotgun blast of, you know, these pieces of sharp wood the size of daggers traveling at hundreds of feet per second, it's absolutely lethal. Now, the Jane, uh, with Maynard on board, does not get the worst of it. Um, he apparently has nine casualties out of a crew of 33. Still pretty nasty. Um, at this point, the Ranger falls off to starboard. Now, the Adventure, Blackbeard ship, drifts aground, um, either from a little bit of small arms return fire, cutting the ropes, holding the jib sail in place, or it might have been the recoil of the broadside. Yeah, they're thinking that the, the popular theory is that he was such he was so familiar with the with where he was, and he was such a skilled sailor that it was actually the force of the rounds he put into the other boats that pushed his ship so far sideways <laughs> that, that it went up onto a sandbar. Yeah. Um, so knowing that the Jane is draws more water than the Adventure, uh, Maynard anchors his ship within twenty five yards. Of, uh, of Blackbeard's vessel continues to fire with small arms and there's just this exchange of musket fire going back and forth because he knows that he can't then board the adventure because he'll run aground as well and then he loses the initiative now doesn't last long Teach manages to get the adventure off the sandbar turns in approaches the ranger now at this point though he sees what looks like a fairly empty deck 
on the Ranger. Thinks he has the advantage of numbers. There is one thing he doesn't know, though. What is that? Everybody's waiting downstairs. Exactly. Exactly. He, he put over half of his crew uh, below decks. Um, they haven't been touched by the cannon fire. They're not going to be hurt by small arms fire. He sees a few men standing exposed on the deck of the Jane, moves to border, thinks, I've got this locked up. One ship is out of the action. Now I take the second one. Yeah. The first one was easy. This one's going to be just mm-hmm. as So he approaches the Adventure Inn, orders his men to throw granados, uh, early grenades. Think a miniature version of that big giant bomb with the fuse on it that Adam West's Batman was running around with. That's actually a really good description. Of it's it. Yeah. It's, it's like a grapefruit-sized version of that. Yeah. Um, it, it's the precursor to the modern hand yeah. grenade. So it's, think a hand grenade with a, like a, a Bugs Bunny fuse. Yeah. It's crude, but if it's used right, it can be extremely effective. In this yeah, case, it, was, it wasn't. No. Um, the deck is relatively empty. Now, if they'd gotten one down the hatch of the Jane yeah, into all the men below decks... That, that probably would have changed the tide of the battle. We would be having a very different conversation at the moment. These, they're not just explosives... They're filled with nails, they're filled with shot, they're filled with glass. Anything Stones. that you pour into yeah. these things. And it's shrapnel that gets you. It's, a, from what historians say, a very unpleasant thing to be facing. Yeah. So, Blackbeard's, Blackbeard moves the adventure in, grapples with the Jane. Some say he actually reached out and grabbed the Jane's foreyard himself and pulled the ships together. Probably apocryphal. It's a cool image, though. Yeah. That's why I wanted to include it. Yeah, I like to think that he did. Yeah. This dude was nuts. Sees that uh, Maynard's few men remaining above deck have moved to the stern of the ship, and he, and with about 14, 15 of his men, they jump onto the, the deck of the Jane and move to attack Maynard's men. At this point, this is where Maynard calls his remaining guys he up. springs the trap. Yeah, he springs the trap, and Blackbeard walks right, right into it. Um, and this is the point, um, they emerge from below decks, up the ladder, Maynard had the hatches removed to facilitate this, and then they hit Teach's men in the rear. Now, Charles Johnson talks about this, uh, he gives probably the most dramatic version of what happens, and it's the one I like to quote because it is kind of fun. He talks about Teach and Maynard singling each other out for a face-to-face duel. Yeah, that's the, kind of the iconic, uh, painting. Yeah. Is of those two fighting. Mm-hmm one-on-one while there's yeah. this big battle where nobody's really paying attention to that. Well, and Johnson is a guy who today would have been, probably made it pretty big as a screenwriter. Yeah. Uh, they they move, toward, they move towards each other. They exchange pistol shots. Blackbeard misses. Maynard doesn't. But he, Blackbeard gets hit with a pistol shot, is barely phased. Now, according to the Boston Newsletter, the encounter continues thus. Maynard and Teach themselves began to fight with their swords... Maynard making a thrust, the point of his sword going against Teach's cartridge box and bending it to the hilt. Teach broke the guard of it and wounded Maynard's fingers, but did not disable him, whereupon he jumped back, threw away his sword, and fired his pistol, which again wounded Teach. Now, as this is happening, the fight between the Royal Navy sailors and Teach's crew seems to be going the way of the guys in the Navy. Uh, Teach's men get driven back, probably through superior close-range firepower and superior training of Maynard's guys. They're driven back, their casualties mount. Most of Maynard's crew then moves in to surround Teach. And this is where he's in trouble. He tries to finish Maynard off, but at this point, according to Charles Johnson, one of Maynard's men gave him a terrible wound in the neck and throat. Uh, According to the Boston Newsletter, DeMelt 
struck him between then with his sword and cut Teach's face pretty much. They're referring to Abraham de Melt, who was uh, this famous Scottish Highlander member of, uh, of Maynard's crew, who was known to fight with a large basket-hilted claymore. This is a heavy, big sword. And for some reason, I can't stop picturing this guy as Billy Connolly. I don't know why. Okay, I like it. Just running up. Oh, uh, you're a very naughty pirate. Yeah, oh, I'm going to hit you with my sword. Oh, no. Oh, I've stepped on a jobby. I don't know. I, I can't get the image out of my head. You went a little fat bastard there at the end. I'm, I'm fine with that. Like, I'm good. Oh, Blackbeard kind of looks like a bearded baby. Like a baby. So, back to Charles Johnson. Teach stood his ground and fought with great fury till he received five and twenty wounds. Five of them by shot. So, in the course of this fight, Teach takes five musket balls, twenty sword wounds, and, and then... one cut his face pretty much. Mm-hmm. One cut his face pretty much. And then Charles Johnson kind of steps away from the whole melodramatic aspect of it and then hits us with a, a this, this denouement. At length, as he was cocking his pistol, having fired several times before, he fell down dead. That is the extent of how Charles Johnson talks about Blackbeard's death. That he fell down dead. Four words. Uh, now, the Boston Newsletter uh, takes it to... The, uh, a better extent. One of Maynard's men, being a Highlander, engaged Teach with his broadsword, who gave Teach a cut in the neck. Teach saying, Well done, lad. The Highlander replied, If it be not well done, I'll do it better. With that, he gave him a second stroke, which cut off his head, laying it flat on his shoulder. Well, so that's some imagery there. And at this point, so dies Edward Teach. So dies the famous Blackbeard. So at this point in the battle, eight of Teach's 14 crewmates that joined him on in boarding the Jane uh, had either been killed or seriously wounded. The remainder surrender. By this time, Ranger uh, has recovered from the devastating broadside she'd received earlier, moves to the adventure's unengaged side, grapples, and the few men remaining on that uh, on on the Ranger board, uh, board the adventure and force the remaining crew to surrender. Uh, and actually, in a tragic little final moment, one of the Ranger's crew was actually shot and killed by one of the guys aboard Jane who mistook him for a pirate. Yep. Uh, there is a second little bizarre part to this finale that um, involves a member of Teach's crew, a freed slave known as Black Caesar, who we might actually be doing, we'll talk about on future episodes. Yeah, I think that was an interesting cat. Um, he was below decks with orders to blow up the powder store should the ship fall to the enemy. Now, if he had succeeded... All three of these vessels would have been gone. Yeah, it's whenever whenever the powder on one of these things goes, yeah. it it goes. And and at this point, just about everybody on these three ships is on the adventure. It's in the middle ship. These guys are probably going to be dead. Yeah, most of them, if not all of them, are essentially tied to it. Yeah. Um. Then, now he's stopped by a pair of merchant sailors uh, from a trading vessel that had actually come aboard the adventure the night before after having an onshore party. Um. Now they. <laughs> They didn't get off in time for this battle to start, so they just stayed below decks. They stayed out of it. They were likely hungover. Probably. Like, another another tactical advantage that uh, Maynard had over Blackbeard was his men weren't hungover. No. They weren't up all night drinking. That's true. I, I know what that's like. <laughs> uh, so, at this point, the fight's over. 
It's time to tally the final butchers, Bill. Um, the best source we have for this is actually in a letter that Maynard wrote about three weeks after this action. Uh, he claims that on the Jane alone, he had eight men killed and 18 wounded. So this is most of his men. Uh, and a, a total um, of 14 killed and 22 wounded is claimed by the official report of Governor Spotswood. So that is 36 out of 57. Yeah, not great. That's that's a high casualty rate. Not I mean, that's great. that is definitely a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, so Maynard remains off of Ocracoke for two more days, patches up the damaged ships, tends the wounded, buries the dead, takes the step of removing Teach's head fully from his body, dumps his mangled body overboard, and there is, of course, that famous legend yes. that claims that after this body was dumped into the water, this headless body... It swims around the Jane several times. And then it disappears. It sinks slowly beneath the waves. Sinks beneath the water. So the three ships make their way back to Bath uh, with Teach's severed head hanging from the bowsprit. Six of Teach's men that are rounded up in Bath uh, join the rest of their comrades that are captured at Ocracoke and taken to Virginia for trial. Sixteen men go to trial for their lives. Fourteen of them are found guilty and meet the hangsman, hangman's noose. I mean, those, those numbers are... They kind of fall in line with most of these trials for, mm-hmm. for pirates. Maybe they might not have been exactly fair, but, well, you know, it's the way things were. Uh, now, back to Governor Alexander Spotswood of Virginia. His men and Maynard sailors gathered uh, what goods could be found on the adventure and in Teach's home in Bath. Uh, they auction them off. They get a total value of 2,238 British pounds, about a half a million dollars in today's money, which upsets Governor Eden because they're basically... Stealing North Carolina goods, right? And that turns and into a whole thing. Stolen himself? That he would have stolen himself? And that's bullshit. And we will get into that when we do our William Eden episode. Uh, most of that money is taken by Spotswood himself to cover the cost of the operation. Uh, the rest that remains goes directly into his wallet, mm-hmm. right in there. Uh, now there were prizes on offer. There were rewards on offer for the death of of Blackbeard. Total rewards uh, accrued by Maynard and his men were about 400 pounds, about $85,000 in today's money. Here's the kicker. It's shared by all of the men. Not not all the men involved in the action off of Ocracoke Inlet. It's shared by all the men in the crews of both the Royal Navy frigates that were the source of of Maynard's strike team. Uh, The vast majority of which were not present for this action, played no part in the death of Blackbeard. But that's the way prize money is... the prize money system worked in the Royal Navy. And the second kicker is they got this money, but for the most part, it was tied up in, uh, it was tied up in, in adjudication. So they get it four years after the fact. 17, uh, 1722, they finally get this money. Gotta love the red tape. Mm, gotta love the red tape. Um, after this... An episode of whenever these dudes finally get paid, this is still a thing. Yeah, Maybe. So that's uh, something to aspire to. It so really is. To the dudes finally get paid for not dying <laughs> at Blackbeard's steely hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Robert Maynard, after this is over, continues his service in the Royal Navy, uh, pretty much serving without further acts of extreme heroism or further notoriety. I don't want to say he faded into obscurity, but... We don't hear much from him. Yeah, he did become a captain. He did become a captain, which which it's is a, he had a, a pretty good yeah career. a pretty good gig. Um, based off of the sparse uh, admiralty records we have of him, uh, and then he dies in seventeen fifty one, 
at the then ripe old age of 66. So it seems like he went on to have a pretty good life. Um, and, I mean, this is just a... Is it where he died? Uh, he died in England. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's... I wonder if he stayed in the college. He is buried at... He is buried at, at the church in Deal, which is on the coast of Kent. Oh, okay. Which is a few miles up the coast from, from where he, he grew up, I think. Mm-hmm. Don't quote me on that. I'd have to look it up. Uh, but yeah, he, he died a comfortable death at home in bed and was kind of buried in his hometown. And uh, from this point forward, November 22nd, 1788, kind of considered, as you said, to be the end date of the golden age of piracy. I mean, despite the fact that, that more that many notorious pirates are still free at this time, they continue yeah, to operate for... far from over, yeah. but this kind of marked the beginning of the end. The Navy now really has the upper mm-hmm. hand, which was kind of an inevitability at yeah. the time. It's the Navy... And the thing I and the thing I love about this whole story is what a close run thing it was. Blackbeard almost succeeded. Now, if he'd fired a second broadside, or if one of these cannonballs had hit uh, the mast of the Jane, or if you know two more men had come aboard the Jane with him, he Blackbeard was very much in love with his own his own persona. Yeah, and his own mythos. Yeah, so it was pretty easy for Maynard to get him to bite. Mm-hmm. Uh, all he had to do was just. Hide dudes. Yeah. Well, he, it, and also Blackbeard could have run. Mm-hmm. He could have taken off into the dunes. He could have gone overland. Yeah, but he was already doing shots in front of the guy <sighs> and calling him a puppy. Yeah. Once, well, yeah. He, once you throw a puppy out, that's like if you call somebody a clown. Yeah. Like, that's it. It's over. There's no coming back. You're going to have to fight. Yeah. You're going to have to fight. And I think he had a moment where he stopped and he went, if I defeat two Royal Navy ships... I will never have to an enemy crew resist me again. Yeah. Because when you defeat when you defeat a bunch of merchantmen, it's one thing. If you capture a lot of ships, it's one thing. If you beat the enemy that's hunting you, if you defeat them, if you kill a lot of them, your legend is cemented. Your legend is cemented. Now what would have happened to Blackbeard had he not died that day? I don't know. But I know that if he had won the Battle of Ocracoke Inlet, it would have gone absolutely into legend. People would have been telling that story for years. Yeah, there, there that would that would definitely have been a like a, a real sounding point. Well, yeah, and God knows how much more pirate stuff we were going to see at Chachki shops in the Outer Banks. Always, always. <laughs> his house would be a museum if people yeah. didn't steal his house. Like after he died, uh, people went over and just started taking things. Mm-hmm. They just started like. Yeah. stealing furniture and shit and like whenever the furniture was gone they're like oh we'll just take some of the walls yeah. and they just stole his house and not to mention all these legends of buried treasure in the Outer Banks and all these stories and all these myths and, and his place within popular culture mm-hmm. all the movies that have featured Blackbeard um, the TV shows that have featured Blackbeard or, or things related to it and the amount of literature that is written about him yeah uh, he, he seamlessly made the transition from uh, history into popular culture. Exactly. And he's, he wasn't the most prolific of the, the the famous pirates at this time, but you can see a lot of reasons why he is definitely the most famous. Yeah, if, if you were keeping track with this timeline, he was not a pirate for very long. No. And that's, uh, Two and a half years? You'll see that with a lot of these guys. Yeah. Very few of them retired. Mm-hmm. Two and a half years. Like, Benjamin Hortigold was, was one of uh, one of the exceptions. Like, he made multiple careers mm-hmm. out of this. Yeah. And he was good at all of them. Like, he was a great pirate. He was yeah. a great pirate hunter. He was a great privateer. Like, he was outstanding at everything that he yeah. did. So, it was a lot of fun telling this story. 
Um, it was a lot of fun to research, a lot of fun to think about. Um, I started having Blackbeard dreams, yeah, which was kind of cool. Uh, but the, I think the most exciting part of this is how many other stories it opens up for us yeah, to tell. A lot of the guys that we talked about, mm-hmm. you're going to hear about them again. Yeah. And I know this was a singular event we really talked about, plus a little bit of biographical information. Like I said, in the future, look forward to a multi-part series where we really dig into Blackbeard. Uh, and this is an episode that's going to be longer than our typical episodes, but it's our first full-length episode. We wanted to start off big. Uh, this is going to be kind of the end of the story we're going to tell today. Thank you, everybody, for bearing with us, uh, listening to our voices. Uh Chris, I know that you have some social media links for people who may want to follow us and follow our content. Lots of social media. Uh, Again, you can follow us on Twitter at PodcastTRR. On Facebook, you can find us at Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Uh, On Instagram, we are TRRPod. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really look forward to hearing from you. Please drop a comment, throw some likes around, share it uh, if you like what you see. If you'd like to reach us directly, if you have something you'd like to to have us mull over, something you'd like to suggest, uh, please don't be shy about throwing us an email at trrpod at gmail.com. And any and all feedback is welcome. Please do be nice, though. We are sensitive men. I will block and report you. <laughs> and you can also find our YouTube page, which we will be adding more content to, at Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Uh, you can find me, Rob, at uh, on Instagram at Meatneck, M-E-A-T-N-E-C-K, all one word. You can find me on Twitter at Meatneck2. Yeah, uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram, I don't know exactly why you would, unless you really want to see more pictures of Jack, the uh, lovable show dog. Our canine outreach specialist. Canine outreach specialist. You can follow me on Instagram at Nightlife Commando. And if you want to follow any of our ongoing pirate adventures, Chris? Uh, yes. Please don't be shy about following us on Twitter at Renegades. Of the Re- I'm sorry, Twitter is uh, at PGH Renegades. And you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Renegades of the Rotunda. Excellent. Uh, again, a very special thanks to all of you who listened to our preview episode, uh, gave us feedback. Um, we are very, very glad that you decided to put up with us. Uh, we hope you enjoy the episode today. Uh, again, keep listening. Again, a very big thanks to our friends, the Bloody Seamen, Pittsburgh's greatest ever pirate punk band, uh, for their contribution of some awesome music. I highly recommend you go on iTunes and find their albums Sail Hayton and Ahoy Motherfuckers. Guys, I think that's going to do it for today. Until next time, we invite you to hold fast. <laughs>